Let's go before the word of the Lord now and hear him speak to us these important instructions from 1 John. 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 18 and extending to verse 27. Let's give attention to God's word. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour, for they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar? That he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father, and whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you have heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that He made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you received from Him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as His anointing teaches you about everything... And is true and is no lie, just as it is taught you, abide in Him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Well, before we look at this Word together, let's go to the Lord once more in prayer and ask for his help and his blessing. Father in heaven, we know that you have an important word of instruction to give to us here from First John 2. And we know that apart from the power of your spirit, taking these words and illumining our hearts and our minds, that we would receive them and that these words would have transformative power in our lives, we know that apart from the Spirit doing that work, we who are here labor in vain. And so we feel very dependent upon you in this moment as we come before your word. We need your strength. We need your presence. We need you to make plain to us what it is that you would have us to know. And so, Father, listen to the hearts and the prayers of your people right now. Listen to what it is that we need and use this word in exactly the measure that you've intended it from before the foundation of the world to make inroads into our lives in such a way that we would know that you have indeed met with us and we have been changed by this, your word. Bless us now with that spirit 
We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We all have those little memories of when we are children that come rushing back to us at various moments in our lives. It was about a year ago that I was working with my son Luke, who is today four, he was then three, and we are still working on this, but he is, he struggles, as many young boys do, sitting still in the midst of a worship service. You've seen my dear wife at times leave with him in the midst of the service. Part of that's because daddy preaches really long, and I see a few nods, I appreciate that, I appreciate that. With endurance and patience comes character, and so we're trusting that's going to come for him. But I remember speaking to him after a peculiarly difficult Sunday morning. This was after, this is the afternoon post-game conversation at the Sheridan home. Luke, I heard things didn't go too well today during service, and again talking through this, he said, Daddy, it's just so hard to sit still, you know? Yes, son. It's hard to sit still. It's not just for three and four-year-olds in the midst of a service it's hard to sit still, though. It's all of us. Sitting still is difficult. And the passage before us, John is speaking to a group of Christians that he's calling to sit still. In the word that they have received in Christ. That's what that little word abide means in this text. It means remain, stay put, stick yourself deep into so as not to move. That's what he's saying. I want you to abide in Christ because I know how tempting it is to, to move, to progress beyond where you should go, to you know, to sprawl out on the pew or on the floor and make a bunch of noise and run up and down the aisles. I know that's what you want to do, but I want you to sit still in Christ. I want you to abide in Him. John tells us in this passage the reason that's hard. It's first of all, there's an internal disposition for us as those who are fallen just to be wayward. It's why we, we, we resonate so deeply with the hymn writer who says, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Whenever I sing those words, whenever I hear you sing those words, whenever those words are quoted, something just very deep inside of you go, yes, that is so true of me. All right? And the reason for that is there's an internal disposition that is by default setting in our heart's going to tilt. It wants to move. And we don't have a difficulty staying put in the truth that we have been given in the gospel. But there's another reason, and one of the reasons that John's really focusing on in this text is that there are so many persuasive ideas and thoughts and tantalizing affections and attractions in the world that just draw us. Something comes from the outside and we just 
are drawn towards it and we forget where it is we're supposed to be rooted and where it is we are supposed to stand. And John actually tells us that's peculiarly true of the time in which we live. And so this morning as we come before this text, we want to say, Lord, what would it take for us to be a people who are immovable in Christ when we struggle with an internal disposition that wants to drift and we struggle in a world that's externally that's beckoning us on from you. We, we need something strong to keep us, one of Paul's favorite terms, anchored in Christ. We've got to drop the anchor deep so the bow doesn't drift off. And we don't, as we said at the very beginning of the service, as Paul warns Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.19, that we don't make shipwreck of our faith. That's a really big deal. It's really important. And John knows it. And the churches in Asia Minor that he's writing to, probably specifically, we're going to note this today, the church at Ephesus was probably one of the churches that received this letter, have seen this firsthand. Because there have been those, as this text is noted, who were once with us, but they went out from us. And the reason they went out from us is because they never really were of us. And you know those stories in your own life, whether it's family members or friends who've left faith, who've just drifted off. It's a living example of the parable of the soils. Those who are excited about the word at the beginning, it's choked out and doesn't endure and doesn't actually bear fruit. And John is speaking to that. He's concerned about the churches in Asia Minor that they would not drift, but they would abide in and remain in Christ. And he wants them to know that the time that you're in is not going to be your friend. There's going to be a temptation to drift. And so we want to look at this passage under three headings this morning. We want to look first at the challenge we face in the last hour. And we want to look secondly at the confidence that we have in the midst of the last hour. And we want to look finally at the combat we must wage in this last hour, right? The challenge, the confidence, the combat. Three C's this morning as we approach 1 John chapter 2. Now the challenge I'm already hinting at as we begin looking at this passage together is that we live in a peculiarly tempting time. Now John says it in that very opening phrase when he says, little children, it is the last hour. It is the last hour. Now, that phrase, the last hour, is not found anywhere else in the entirety of the New Testament. So, as you can imagine, scholars just love thinking about what it is that John is trying to say when he uses this phrase that we don't see anywhere else in the last hour. But you know that the concept of the last hour is all over the New Testament. The very phrase is not there, but the concept of the last days or the last times, that's all over the New Testament, and we could go to a multitude of scriptures to see that that is the case. Hebrews chapter 1 verses 1 and 2, the writer of Hebrews opens up his epistle saying, long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he's spoken to you by his son. Or Peter in 1 Peter 1.20 he, speaking of Christ, was foreknown from before the foundation of the world, but he has been manifest to you in these last days 
for your sake. Or Peter, most famously, maybe in Acts chapter 2, in the Pentecost sermon, as he quotes from the prophet Joel, in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. There it is. And John here is, I believe, speaking in this phrase unique to him, the last hour of about those last days or those last times. And he says, you're in the midst of them. Now, you may have noted even in the passages I just quoted from Hebrews and Peter and from Acts, that when the phrase the last days or the last times, or in this case, the last hour shows up, there's something very specific that is being addressed. That's important because we live in a time where this is really confused by many who are writing on matters of the end times, matters of what we refer to as eschatology, the study of the last things. Very confused by this phrase in, in the wider kind of evangelical world today. But the scripture I think is pretty clear, and even in those passages you might see, as it speaks about the last days, it speaks about the first coming of Christ. Hebrews chapter 1 Long ago and in many ways, the prophet spoke to you. But in these last days, the Lord has spoken to you by His Son. But, but speaking of Jesus' first coming, that's exactly what Peter means in 1 Peter 1.20 when he says, He who was known from before the foundation of the world has now been made manifest to you. When? In the last days. Well, who is Peter speaking to? Those who saw Jesus in the coming of His flesh. The first advent of Christ. And he's referencing the first coming of Christ as the beginning of the last days. What that means is that we are in the midst of the last days in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ on his first advent. And the pouring out of the Spirit after Jesus ascends to the heavenly places and the Spirit age extends even until the present moment until Christ returns again, the second coming, will be the end of the last days. What that means is we've been in the last days for 2,000 years. And in typical fashion in the Bible, as a day is a thousand years unto the Lord, we have been in the midst of a lengthy period of time that the Bible refers to as the last days. And it's a wonderful time. In fact, all of those passages of Scripture that we referenced a second ago speak about Jesus' coming, the pouring out of the Spirit, the advance of the Gospel. It's a time where, where it started with Jesus and 12 disciples and then a few hundred disciples and a few thousand disciples to where today the Gospel has been spread throughout almost all of the world and there are only a handful of places in the world where the Gospel is not yet proclaimed. And what I think we can say with great confidence is the gospel is triumphing. It's going forth and spreading. And that's a picture of what to anticipate during the last days. But John tells us that's not the whole of the story. That's, that's one aspect of the last days. Here's the other aspect of the last days. Look at that first verse. Children, it is the last hour. And you have heard that the Antichrist is coming. And so now many Antichrists have come, notice, therefore we know it is the last hour. All right? So John is, John is referencing this last hour. He's noting these last days, a time of advancement, but he's saying, listen, the time of advancement of the gospel is also the time of the proliferation of antichrists. 
when the gospel goes forth and the kingdom of Christ is preached and the spirit of the Lord changes hearts, as it was doing in Asia Minor, and it pushes into territories it's never been before, I want you to know there are going to be, there are going to be spirits who push back against the advance of that kingdom. That there will be rapture of the growth of the gospel and there will be rupture of those who will attack the gospel. And he says, you know what, you've heard this from the beginning. You, you've known this. As you've heard, and even now is true, the Antichrist has come in, many Antichrists have already come. Now we're going to talk about his distinction between the Antichrist and the Antichrist later, because he's going to talk about it again in 1 John 4. So those of you who are excited about that, it's coming. Just hold your horses for now. We'll get to it today. But what he is saying is that as that battle, that cosmic clash continues throughout the, the extension of these last days, you're going to see the gospel move forth and you're going to see people attack the gospel and the battle lines of demarcation are going to continue to intensify. And so when you see false teachers rising up in your midst and distorting and denying the essence of who Christ is, that is the spirit of the Antichrist because God has already done a great work in you and now the evil one has come through the manifest of the Antichrist and he is attacking you. This is the challenge of living in the last days. This is the challenge of living in the last days. There's wonderful things going on in the kingdom of God. There are challenging and really, really difficult things going on in the kingdom of God. Because as the gospel advances, so does the proliferation of Antichrist. Now, for our purposes today, I just want to simply ask the questions to help us get at this phrase, Antichrist, just a little bit. Again, we'll have a chance at it again a little bit later. But I want to ask this question, what makes an Antichrist an Antichrist? <laughs> what makes an Antichrist an Antichrist? And John does a good job of helping us define that. Verses 22 to 23, he says, Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist. The person who denies that Jesus is the Christ. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father, but whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Now it's really important to hear John and what it is he's trying to get across with that language of confession. He's not merely saying, someone who says, yeah, I, I believe in Jesus. He's not just saying, Oh, that person confesses Christ. They're clearly of the Lord. No. John is wanting us to dig deeper. He's saying, is the person's teaching, is the person's belief, is the person's confession a true confession? One that is rooted in the doctrine of who Christ is and what it is that he's actually done. He wants us to, he wants us to know the very person and the work of Jesus and he wants us to know the theology Behind the person, the work of Jesus, so that we believe correctly about who Christ is. The reason we know that is these were people who said, yeah, we believe in Christ. And then they begin to listen to false teaching. And they begin to believe other things about Christ. And then they ultimately denied Christ and they departed from the faith. And so the question is, how do we know the authenticity of a true confession? Do they remain in the teaching that was given to them from the beginning? That's what he's saying. Or are they drifting? Literally the word in 2 John is, are they progressing beyond the foundation? 
did they get really big for their britches and think they got smarter than the original apostles and go on to teaching that is not of the Lord and is not in accord with the Scriptures. That's the spirit of the Antichrist. That's the spirit of the Antichrist. Now this is one of the reasons, just to pause for a second, because I think this is a really big deal in our day and time. It's one of the reasons that Cornerstone is a confessional church. We hold to a standard of doctrine. It's important that we hold to a standard of doctrine because it's important that the elders and the pastors and the deacons and the leaders of this congregation are not simply making up what it is that they think the Bible is saying, but are saying, no, we believe the orthodox faith that's been handed down through the ages, the faith once delivered by the apostles, the book of Jude, we're holding to that in clear conscience. And what we, we pray that you hear, how we want you to be discipled, is not in some new and novel teaching. Oh, I've never heard that before. But then I'm hearing the same old thing over and over and over again. And it is to me fresh and new through the power of the Spirit, not because it's new teaching. Old teaching, fresh renewal in the Spirit. That's what we're after. That's what we're after. Does that make sense? When someone says to you, as you will hear in modern evangelicals, and this is the reason this is so important, no creed but Christ. You've heard that, right? No creed but Christ. It's, it sounds good. It sounds good. And, and, and at one level we want to say, well, yes to that. But the second question has to be asked. And here's the second question. What Christ are you talking about? What Christ? Is it the Christ of the Mormons? Who, who claim that Jesus is the Son of God, but that He was not from eternity past and was a created being like you and me in time, which is not what we believe about Jesus? Is, is it the Christ of Muhammad? That's right, the founder of Islam, who also believed in Christ, believed He was a prophet of God, but denied the resurrection because he had also denied the crucifixion? Is that the Christ we're talking about? Is it the Christ a little closer to home of David Koresh in the 1990s who in Waco, Texas led 80 people into a cult that ultimately was attacked by the FBI and they lost their lives as he was leading them into a mass suicide believing he was the Messiah in line with Christ? Is, is that what we're talking about? You see how we, we have to ask the question, what Christ are we talking about? And whenever we do that, we're doing theology. We're saying, no, we believe the Bible teaches this about Christ. It doesn't teach that. We believe this about Christ, but, but not that. And when we begin to do that, we're making a confession. And that's what Paul is saying here. He says, he who confesses Christ, he's making a public declaration of the truth of Jesus about what it is that he Believes. Now, it seems quite clear in the writings of 1 John, and we'll look at this again more in the future as well, but the, the particular struggle in 1 John is probably the denial of Jesus' incarnation, the fullness of his flesh. I want you to turn 1 John chapter 4. Okay, Again, we'll come back to this, but it's important that you see this now as to why it's such a big deal to John. I want you to see what he says, verse 2. 
in 1 John 4, and I want you to see how he distinguishes it. He says, by this you know the Spirit of God. Isn't this great? If you ever wanted to know the Spirit of God and whether the Spirit of God's at work, I mean, here, here he tells you, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come, how? In the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. Notice, this is the spirit of the Antichrist. You see what he's doing here? He's saying, if, if you deny that Jesus came in the flesh, maybe you said he came, but he wasn't really human. Oh, he kind of looked human. But he wasn't human like you and I would, would think that he's human. He's not human in, in our full way. He's, he was somehow superhuman, different kind of human. He was, he was maybe, as an early church heresy declared, called docetism, that he seemed like a man but wasn't really a man. He was like a divine hologram. He was a spirit who could kind of shadowy show up in flesh that looked like flesh and fit but wasn't really flesh. And the early church in 325 in the Council of Nicaea condemned that teaching because they saw in that teaching the entire loss of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The entire loss of it. Think about it. If Jesus is not fully man, then how can Jesus represent those who are fully men and women as a complete substitute for us on the cross? He can't. And if he's not fully flesh, that means he didn't fully bleed. And without blood, there's no remission of sins. And if he didn't fully bleed and didn't fully die and wasn't resurrected bodily, as is described, but only in a hologram fashion, how can we be sure that our flesh will really come back to life? You, you see how the whole gospel hinges on the fact that Jesus must be in the flesh? This is critical. This is why we can't, we can't check our thinking caps at the door when we're walking through our faith with others. It requires reflection. It requires moments like this in the midst of a message to do a little theology and talk about how this is, works itself out in history. If Jesus didn't assume full humanity, then we can have no confidence that full humanity will be saved. This was an issue throughout the early church. Could it be in the context of John that that's what's going on here? Possibly. Possibly. And so John says they went out from us because they were never of us. They denied and have distorted the teaching of the gospel. And because of that, they're no longer with us. This is the challenge of living in the last days. We're in context where lots of different thoughts and ideas. And, and they're going to sound plausible. What does the word say? That's exactly what John does in this Context. He takes us from the challenge of the last hour into the confidence that we should have in the last hour. I want you to see two things that give us confidence in this text. If you, you look with me in verse 20, you'll, you'll see it. He says, but, puts a little contrast. He says, this is true of them. They got caught by the spirit of the Antichrist. They fell into false teaching and distorted the gospel. They ultimately departed from the fellowship because they were never of Christ. But you... See, now he's speaking to them. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all 
have knowledge. Now, I think John here is talking about two components that are absolutely essential to true saving faith and sustaining faith throughout the course of our lives. And that is the presence of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. The presence of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. That's what he means by you have been anointed. It's a key word throughout this whole section in the letter of John. He's going to come to it several times. He says, you have been anointed by the Holy One. Notice what he says in verse 27. He makes the same reiteration. But the anointing that you have received from Him abides in you. And notice, you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as the anointing teaches you about everything, this anointing teaches, and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in Him. So in both cases, he says, this anointing and this knowledge, they're tied together. In fact, this anointing teaches you to such a degree, you don't need any teachers to come in and tell you some new and highfalutin spiritual theology that the apostles didn't have. So the question is, what is this anointing? It's the Holy Spirit. Now we know this because Jesus, we're told, same word, Luke 4, 18, was anointed by the Holy Spirit at His baptism. Same, same language. Paul, when the Spirit of God poured out on him in 2 Corinthians 1, 21, we're told that he was anointed by the Spirit and his ministry was inaugurated. It was launched through the power of the Spirit. Now the question needs to be, some degree, when did this anointing happen? And what's the knowledge that really comes from this anointing? Well, I, I think here, John is referencing two things. I think it's really important because I think they apply for us as well. He says, I want to call you back, but you have been anointed. Past tense, it's already happened, and you all have knowledge. How can he say that? Because the Holy Spirit has fallen, Acts chapter 2. At the point in which Paul is writing... To the churches in Asia Minor, the Holy Spirit has already fallen. And it's already been, there's always been an anointing of the Spirit in power that has come in the preaching of the gospel. And 3,000 souls are saved on that day at Pentecost. And through the writings of Luke in the story of Acts, that gospel keeps marching forward through the power of the Spirit, anointing other people and communities from every kindred, tribe, tongue, and nation. And he says, this is exactly what Jesus said would happen. And it came to you. And you were anointed. And you had the knowledge that comes through the Spirit. Listen to what Jesus says. John 14, 6. Notice what happens. These things I have spoken to you while I'm still with you. But the Helper, who? The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. Notice what he's going to do. He will teach you all things things and he will bring to your remembrance all that i've said to you that's what the spirit does the spirit brings to your mind and your heart the things which you have embraced when you originally came into the knowledge of christ and the truth of the word of god now you know this phenomenologically in your life don't you you're walking through life and you've kind of gotten off because you've listened to a number of vain fairy tales in this life, a number of self-help gospels, a number of 
false ideas that you've intermixed with your faith and you've seen the wheels come off, you've seen that it's not been fruitful, you're wondering why you feel estranged from the Lord and then somebody speaks the word of the gospel into your life and all of a sudden you realize I've been buying a lie and in that moment the, the word of God comes alive to you and you are renewed in the spirit and it's not that you learned something new. What happened? You remembered in the spirit what you knew and had forgotten. That's a sign that the Spirit of God's at work. He's going to bring to remembrance the things that you've known. Don't you find the older you get and that you walk in the faith, it's not knowing new things. It's keeping the old things you know in the front of your mind. Isn't that what it is? That's what it is. That's what life is about. It's beautiful. One of my elders this week, we were texting back and forth on a matter and the Lord was doing some things in his life, and, and I was finding myself, just because of all that's going on in his life, just kind of anxious for him and like praying for him and texting back and forth. And then he texted me and said, you know what? This is just why the sovereignty of God gives me so much confidence. And I just found myself go, oh yeah, <laughs> right, God's in control. Oh boy, that, that brings, man, that brings perspective. Praise God, he's in, he's in control. That's what we're talking about. Those who don't experience that, who wind up going off and leaving Christ, they were never of us. But, but here, John is speaking with encouragement to them. He says, this is not true of you. You were anointed. You know why John can say that? John can actually say that because he knows in Acts 19, when the gospel came into Asia Minor through Ephesus, it's a, it's a remarkable story in Acts 19. Paul shows up and he finds some disciples of Christ and he realizes, no wait, you were not baptized in the name of Jesus. And they go, no, we were baptized into the name of, of John and that was a baptism of repentance. You need to be baptized into Jesus. I won't get into that right now. We'll save that for another time. And he goes, we need to, you need to be baptized. You've not received the Spirit. He baptizes them, he preaches the gospel, baptizes them in the name of Jesus. And the Spirit, we're told, comes upon them and they teach and they prophesy. And a mini Pentecost happens right there in Asia Minor. Now John knows that that's happened. And he says, listen, you've had false teachers come in who've led you astray from those things which are foundational. I would have called to remembrance a moment when Paul showed up and he preached the gospel to you. And the Holy Spirit came in the midst of your baptism and you received the knowledge that is truly of the Lord. Don't forget it. Remain in Him. Notice the way he puts it in verse 24. Let what you have heard from the beginning abide in you. That's what, that's what I want. Stay put. Let what you've heard from the beginning abide in you. In you, in what you've heard from the beginning, if it abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that He made to us, eternal life. Eternal life. Now this is, is absolutely encouraging. Uh, when you realize that this is the confidence and the encouragement that John is giving to these believers and they're questioning and they've had concerns and some of them have been tempted to stray and they've seen people go out from them and he goes, no, 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 I want you to remember what the Lord has done. In the midst of your life, I want you to go back to the foundational truths that you once held. I want you to renew yourself in them. I want you to dig deep. And I want those roots to go further 
into the richness of this gospel. So when the winds come and the waves come of this world, you won't be tossed to and fro, but you'll be anchored in the glory of this message. Now, the realization is Jesus is the only one who never, was never pushed or swayed by those false winds of doctrine. Jesus was the one who only held to the covenant promises of his Father and all the commands that came from his Father's lips. He stayed true fully until the end and he paid for all of the times that we lapse into doubt. When we second guess him, when we begin to believe things that are false, that are coming from the world, Jesus, through the power of his atoning sacrifice, paid for the weakness of our faith and the doubts and our sins. And ultimately, he says, if we are one of him, he holds us and sustains us until the end. He is with us even to the end of the age. He walks along with us, ensuring the fact that we will get to the end. And so, we have confidence. We've been anointed. If you have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation, and you know the truths of the gospel, and you are committed as a disciple of Christ, not in perfection, but in direction of your life, then you know this morning, according to 1 John, you have received the anointing, hear the truth of the Lord that you've known from the beginning and remain in it. That's his word to you. Because Jesus heard that word from the beginning and he remained in it for you. And he will now preserve you in it if you are in him. That's an incredibly confident place for us to be able to stand. But it's also a challenge to us. If that's the confidence that we have, how do we fight? What's the combat that we wage in the midst of this last hour? And I want to just challenge us on one, one thing specifically that's negative and then one thing that's positive as we close. This is really important for a people of our time to hear. We must be a people who guard against the cult of novelty. We've got to be that people. We live in an age where the newest, latest, the most fashionable, the coolest, whatever it is, is the thing you ought to be. And I believe that Christians are entering into an era of time within the context of North America, well, it won't be fashionable, it won't be new, it won't be cool, it won't be novel to be a Christian. And if we've been weaned on acceptability through novelty, through newness, through fashionableness, we will be ill-prepared for being the dinosaur of our era, which is how we'll be viewed, how we'll be castigated, how we'll be attacked, and how the Antichrist will be showing up. And it will be hard to not be accepted. We've got to be on guard against the cult of novelty. It's all around us. It's all around us. At every, at every level. It's huge. It's huge for us to hear. How do you guard against the cult of novelty? It's real, real clear. Go back continually to the foundation 
of the gospel. Go back continually to the foundation of the gospel. There is no substitute, friends, for the renewing of yourself in the truth of the gospel daily as an exercise in walk with Christ. There is, there's no substitute for it. There's no substitute for it. If you want to guard yourself against what's most fashionable coming out of the latest trends in psychology and sociology and self-help gospels which roll around, you're going to have to continually remain in the foundations of the gospel themselves. And this is why J.C. Ryle said a long time ago, the longer I live, the more I'm convinced that the world needs no new gospel. As some profess to think, I am thoroughly persuaded that the world needs nothing but bold, full, unflinching teaching of the old paths. Now, Ryle got that comment from Jeremiah 6.16. Thus says the Lord, Stand by the roads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Where the good way is and walk in it. For there you will find rest for your souls. Guard against the cult of novelty. Go continually to the foundations of the gospel. Look for the ancient paths. Walk in it. There you will find rest for your souls. Let's pray that the Lord will bring that. Father, we need that kind of rest because we are a people harried by the latest, the newest, that is almost never the improved. When it comes to your gospel, we know that to be true. We need the old paths. We need the ancient ways. We need the old, old story to ring true in our hearts and our lives. Would you... Help us guard against the cult of novelty. Bring it up in our minds and our hearts right now how it is that we're swayed so easily by whatever it is that's new. Forgive us for that. Help us to go back to the things that are most basic and realize that it is not going beyond them. It is going deeper into them. That is the way forward. Father, press that in on us right now by your Spirit. I ask it in Jesus' name.